Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And this is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. And Joan Bartlett, I'll be here until 6 this evening. Today you'll be hearing from Dr Margie Beavis, the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, speaking about increasing militarism. Part two of the interview with trade union and peace activist Peter Murphy, detailing the situation in the Philippines. A monthly segment about the situation of Western Sahara in the occupied territory and the refugee camps in Algeria. The 8th birthday for APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, with CEO Jessica Morrison. And finally, looking at the end of Nautilus Minerals and their venture off the coast of PNG with Natalie Lowry, media person for the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. But first up, of course, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when last week we predicted what big economic guru Josh Pride M. Icebergs would come up with in the budget that night, for which I concede it didn't, didn't require being an expert soothsayer, but given this was a budget for the period covering from now until the election, about six weeks, upon analysis, and analysis is what the week that was is famous for, most of the pork barreling, or sorry, important expenditure, won't take effect until about the next century, give or take. For instance, that fast train to Geelong, nothing to do with it being the most marginal seat in the country, and yes, there it was in the budget, but the money won't be available before the next two elections and won't be completed until sometime after Port Phillip Bay drowns the train line anyway, so it's got nothing to do with this budget. Reacting to criticism of this leger de man, Scuttle them said critics lacked an understanding of how big projects are funded. You announce it, bask in the glory, hope it works electorally, and then, with a bit of luck, we'll never have to build it. Never scuttle them. Well, it has the added advantage that you can then promise it again next time. The Minister for the Environment, who doesn't believe in climate change, said the budget showed the government's commitment to the environment, and seriously, we'd have to agree. The Minister's name is Price, perfect given that's what the planet's paying, and now she's being urged by the Hayseed and Shipshit Party fossils to back the fossils by approving the Adani, the planet, beautiful coal mine, and now she's being urged by the caring business class party lots in the cities not to approve the Adani, the planet, that beautiful coal mine, and we know coal is beautiful because big supremo scuttled them more lash sun, waved it around in Parliament and said it was beautiful, not approve until after the election. But of course she will make a decision based on science and concern for the environment. Uh, difficult choice, Melissa. It is, it is, very difficult. I am concerned for the environment up north where there are so many marginal seats and I am concerned for the environment in the big cities where there are so many marginal seats. 
As poor Melissa weighs up when to approve more fossils to please the fossils, a mob called the Investor Group on Climate Change reported that if the government uses as it plans its Kyoto carryover credits to achieve its abatement targets, credits for not quite increasing our emissions as much as we promised we would increase our emissions, in another example of taking climate change seriously, our real emission reductions will be a spectacular 16%. And yet, how's this for arrogance against a country doing its best? The European Union and Paris Agreement bureaucrats claim this would lack environmental integrity. How can anyone suggest Trudeau was he lacks integrity when it comes to climate change and the environment? But the EU and Paris officers were put in their place by the Minerals Profits Council of Trudeau, which very sensibly pointed out the use of Kyoto carryover credits has long been accepted. And as a totally neutral observer, would it make any difference to you? Uh, well, yes, we have no vested interest in this matter, but nonetheless it would have the advantage that we wouldn't have to do anything. We could continue with business as usual. And don't forget, we must balance what we can do about climate change, and we are as committed as anyone to address this issue, but must balance what we can do with the impact of that on our delicate economy. We need sensible balance. So can we afford to save the planet? Look, honestly, I don't think we can. As we recognise that huge international corporate behemoths making huge international profits from the fossils we can't afford not to dig up, indeed it's the true Blue thing to do, we also learn that the untrue Blue thing to do is protest against animal cruelty, anti-social environmental terrorists who should be locked up with the animals they're trying to protect. A righteously angry Lord Rupert of Wapping in his Wapping Sin this morning spoke for all of us. Taxpayers will foot the bill. Sorry, our police sources said the rally would cost tens of thousands of dollars in resources. Good point. Though I'm just checking to see where the whopping sin told us taxpayers would pay the ultra, ultra hefty bill for fighting our regular chemical fires in warehouses and factories of the caring business class and the ultra, ultra hefty bill for cleaning up the mess and the cost of environmental destruction. I can't see it immediately, but I'll keep looking. And in another piece of, sick, of uh, slick leger de man, the government handed even more huge tax cuts to the filthy rich, posing as tax cuts for the undeserving lowest of low paid. Interesting, like that Geelong fast rail, it's in the budget but is conditional on the electorate returning the government. If you don't vote for us, you won't get a tax cut. Not that we suggest for one second the budget, which isn't a real budget, has anything to do with the election. Although, personally, I'm getting a whopping $75 to pay my soaring power bills. Thank you, Scuttle Them. Thank you, Josh. So, they've won me. I'll definitely be voting caring business class. Then, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, promised lots of health goodies, particularly for cancer patients, cutting their out-of-pocket expenses, the biggest change since the Socialists introduced Medicare, he told us. 
well should it happen because it is back to the future because Medicare through the Medicare levy was designed to ensure all care was free there would be no need for private health insurance for instance but mostly thanks to the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages so much of the Medicare levy for free public health care was handed to the private sector so thanks little Billy for taking us back to the future a promise to wipe out all subsidies to private health including health insurance would be even more appreciated Oh, how the next few weeks are going to be unbearable. So if we could afford it, listener, I'd suggest we leave the country. Although, check the aircraft. Make sure it stays up better than the latest Boeing jet, which has killed more than 300 passengers and crew. But I do have a slight problem. Boeing said all tests had shown the plane was as safe as the new Boeing jet. And don't forget, when the crashes occurred, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, said Boeing was a great and proud U.S. of corporate. I love it. So we're obviously talking about a most respectable and responsible great corporate, as safe as the new Boeing jet, but then said that between the crashes, it had been working on new software to overcome the minor problem of the nose pointing to the ground and only stopping pointing to the ground when it hit the ground. And it's very close to perfecting the software. As safe as working on software? Can anyone spot a contradiction in there somewhere? And if Donald hadn't told us how respectable and responsible this great corporate is, we might have thought a respectable and responsible corporate might have grounded the fleet until it had perfected the software designed to overcome the small problem of crashing and killing hundreds of people. Last week we quoted Trublowozzi Industry Profits Group Supremo Innes Wheel the Axe defending the important right of workers not to join a union and attacking evil unions for suggesting those who exercise their important right not to join a union should pay a service fee when a union wins them improved wages and conditions. Well, this week the Reserve Bank produced figures showing the low incidence of union membership had nothing to do with that problem of slow wages growth caring employers are so concerned about. It's just that they hate paying wages, <laughs> the bank said. No, no, silly me, I made that up. No, the bank said, this is because a growing share of employees choose not to be union members but continue to be covered by a union negotiated enterprise agreement. But Innes and Co. will defend to the boardroom their right not to pay for that. So, a simple solution. Given their right not to join the union, they could also have the right to reject any extra pay and improved conditions the union they refuse to join wins for union members. They're obviously people of principle, so we can be sure they'd agree. It's simple, and I'm sure Innes would also agree. Freedom of choice. It now seems a very rich, caring business class person anxious to obtain True Blue Aussie citizenship for himself and his family paid thousands and thousands of dollars to obtain a meeting with then Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Stink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, held in a private room at an upmarket Chinese restaurant. And yet, Constable Duffer assures us the citizenship issue was not discussed, not even mentioned. Then, 
what did the very rich, caring business class person, anxious to obtain true blue Aussie citizenship, who paid thousands and thousands of dollars to obtain the meeting, want to discuss? I suppose, and indeed there's a strong chance, he may have discussed it, but Constable Duffer just didn't realise that's what they were talking about. But he says it wasn't discussed, so we must believe him. Finally, I reckon 99.9% of people would be prepared to pay to ensure they didn't have to meet Constable Duffer. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock you can catch some more of Mr Kevin Healy on his program City Limits with a bit of help from a couple of friends. What follows is the speech given at the recent Victorian MAPW that's a medical association for the prevention of war dinner by the secretary, Dr Margie Beavis. Firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to talk on this. The subject is, of course, creeping militarism and also incorporating some stuff about Australia selling weapons to the Saudi Arabians. The creeping militarism in Australia, it's really pervasive in terms of where to start. There was a time when Australia sort of championed the arms trade treaty and really helped in getting the ban on chemical weapons at the United Nations. The militarism now, to look at it, I've divided into a number of topics, so in the community, in government, in electoral processes, in the education sector, in the industry sector, and in fact even reflecting on Australia's ability to defend itself. So starting with the community, Anzac Day, when I was a child, a little while ago, it was a time of sort of quiet reflection and occasional clapping and respect. It's now sort of transformed over the last few years into something that's more like a footy team. It's sort of cheering nationalism, underpinning almost of jingoism, with young people going to Anzac Cove to quote-unquote celebrate Anzac Day. And also the Anzac myth provides an impossible role model for today's soldiers. The Anzac was a huge nationwide expenditure, vastly more than spent in any other country. The Australian government and the private sector combined, mostly Australian government, to spend $550 million. This was more than five times what was spent in England. And if you look at it per soldier killed, which is really we were commemorating the deaths of these soldiers who did enormously sacrifice themselves for us, the per-person cost of commemoration for Australia was nearly 9,000 per soldier killed compared with about 100 for those in the United Kingdom and about $2 for soldiers in Germany. So it's a commemoration that was completely disproportionate and over the top. Similarly, Tony Abbott's project of the memorial in France at Villon Britannia, to quote James Brown, this was $100 million spent that was equivalent to $100 million spent that's not spent on living veterans. No one is tracking the number of veterans who are taking their own lives at the moment. The Australian War Memorial is another issue in the community. It takes weapons companies' donations and names facilities and halls in what is supposed to be a memorial to soldiers who've died in war, and there are the names of the companies that have profited from the war. It's a bit like having wards and hospitals named after tobacco companies. You can't quite envisage Philip Morris lung cancer ward. In addition for the Australian War Memorial, there's half a billion dollars slated for massive expansion 
to quote unquote recognise lesser known conflicts and quote unquote heal veterans. Again, this is half a billion dollars that's not being spent on looking after our living veterans. Um, and it's worth noting that the Australian War Memorial, in fact, has no recognition of the Aboriginal White Frontier Wars remitted. And there's a very good uh, petition put up on um, change.org about the Australian. So if you put change.org and search Australian War Memorial, there's a petition urging for this massive expansion not to go ahead, for, to be spending half a billion dollars on a building that will involve locking down sections that are less than 20 years old and have won architectural awards. It's a terrible waste of money and, and could be so much better spent elsewhere. Also of interest is that Brendan Nelson, who's on the board of the Australian War Memorial, is also on the board of, the chair of the War Memorial, is also on the board of uh, TAWIS, the French nuclear weapons manufacturer. And that does really raise questions about conflict of interest. In early 2017, the government came up with this U-Butte idea that Australia was going to become the 10th biggest, or in the top 10 weapons manufacturers, and announced $3.8 billion in subsidising and underwriting the weapons industry. Again, that's $3.8 billion not spent in the health and education sector, or on housing, or on renewable energy, or indeed on closing the gap in Aboriginal health. There's the cry that goes up is this will create jobs. Well, of course, if you spend enough money, you will create jobs. There's really good evidence from a couple of centres in the US that good academic research showing that there's many more jobs in health, education and renewables if you spend the same money than there are in manufacturing weapons. Just moving on to the government sector, Australia has now and has had since the election of the Liberal government a Minister for Defence Industry, in other words, a Minister for Selling Weapons. This contrasts heavily with New Zealand, who has a Minister for Disarmament and Arms Control. It's a little bit revolting that the Middle East has become a target market for Australia, and Christopher Pine made five trips to the Middle East, and we have millions and millions of dollars of contracts with the Saudis to sell them weapons that they won't. When we, as I'm with the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and when we put in freedom of information inquiries about these, they've claimed that these are commercial incompetence. They brag on the one hand and then they're ashamed of them on the other. The Americans are the biggest weapons manufacturers and sellers in the world. We've been urged by the American government to increase our defence spending to 2% of GDP. This is really problematic on a number of levels. Firstly, it means that the $34 billion that we spent 2016-2017 is going to go up to $59 billion by 2025-26. And that's a massive, almost doubling of our defence spending. This will have the effect of causing an arms race regionally. I mean, what will our neighbours think as we are spending massively more and more on weapons? It's also in the context of plummeting foreign aid. Australia, shamefully, is heading for 0.21% of our GDP in foreign aid. Uh, the standard recommended amount for the OECD is... 0.7%, so less than one-third of what is standard for the OECD. You only have to look at Gordon Brown in Britain, who, when Britain was going through a really big austerity patch, said that we, quote, we will not make cuts on the backs of the world poorest, and so the British legislated in permanently 0.7% foreign aid, and Australia could learn a lot from that instead of cutting and cutting and cutting. I mentioned earlier that $3.8 billion is promised to underwrite the weapons industry. 
this is really startling given how scathing people like Tony Abbott were about the car industry. The weapons industry faces much the same issues regarding costs of wages and structural constraints in becoming a big exporter. But nonetheless, the government's committed to this, and lots of this money is going to local branches of big multinationals. Another issue at government level is border force. It used to be called benignly customs and immigration, but this has been militarised into border force where staff wear uniforms. This leads to secrecy and military operational language. So in other words, by talking as if it's a military operation, they can have less transparency, and this in turn means that it becomes less accountable. We don't know sometimes when boats appear or what's happening. It's, it's all closed in this paramilitary organisation that used to be benign old customs and immigration. You would have seen a few weeks back Scott Morrison on his junket to Christmas Island not only had uniformed border force people, but also Australian Defence Force personnel. The government has cut funding to Border Force just before Christmas. This has the consequence that there are less patrols. This has had two consequences flowing on from that. It increases the risk of a boat arriving before the election, and it also means that they've actually now called in Australian Defence Forces to assist with the boat turnbacks and surveillance. This is very problematic because not only does this make immigration and asylum-seeking political football again, but it also reinforces the message that people who are actually coming to Australia fleeing war and persecution, if you've got the military fighting them, they're able to be discussed in language of invasion and threat rather than people who've committed no crime or trying to find a safe place to live. There's also increased use of the military in announcements Many of you would remember last year Malcolm Turnbull standing in front of jets and troops just to make an announcement that didn't seem particularly relevant. Also, when a distraction is needed, Julie Bishop whizzed over to visit troops, as have many other politicians before her. And when, in fact, in West Australia there was the Canning by-election and an ex-soldier was contesting the by-election in Canning, Tony Abbott around that time announced that 3,000 troops would be going to Ukraine. Uh, fortunately, he was talked out of that, but certainly beating the drum of war during a by-election where an ex-soldier is standing was a curious piece of timing. All of this increased normalisation of war in our society means there's increased acceptance of war and probably in the long run increased risk that we will actually accept going to war yet again. The next topic I'm going to talk about is the actual weapons industry. Tim Costello said... Does Australia want to be known for exporting debts and profiting from bloodshed? It's a very good question. The Pope describes the weapons trade as merchants of death, and I think that's pretty accurate. It's historically a very corrupt industry. The total spend, which has been probably between 1 and 1.6 and 1.7 trillion globally over the last few years, is and 1.6 trillion is 1,600 billion is useful to compare with the sustainability goals. The sustainability goals, uh, many of you would be aware, are the United Nations goals where they set out what they'd like to achieve and how much it would cost to do so. If you compare the global weapons industry spend in one year, if you spent one-fifth of it, so approximately 20%, you could provide clean water, sanitation, and you could get rid of extreme poverty globally. So that's a huge achievement in the sustainability goals. And in fact, if you just increased a little bit further, so instead of using one-fifth of the global weapons spend, 
and made it one-third, so I think it's actually 32%, as well as clean water, sanitation, and eradicating extreme poverty, you could also add in basic education, which is fundamental to improving people's lives. So that would be about one-third of the global weapons spent. Back here in Australia, the government is subsidising the weapons industry, and it's useful to look at a specific example that emerged a couple of weeks ago. Some of you would remember the fuss around EOS Systems, who are selling a Canberra-based company, Australian company. The government's given it $36 million as a subsidy, and they make remotely operated cannons and machine guns and missile launchers that you can put on top of your vehicles. What's really... Concerning, it's concerning on many levels, A, that the government would subsidise a weapon company in the first place. B, there's no guarantees. They're definitely selling these to the Saudis, as we understand it, and there's no guarantees that these weapons are then not being used in Yemen. In, in Senate estimates, questions were asked of public servants, and they could give no guarantee that these weapons were not being used in Yemen. What's happening in Yemen at the moment is an appalling humanitarian crisis. Yemen is a very poor country prior to the war, more than 80% of its food was imported, uh, one of the world's poorest countries, and Save the Children say that since November 2016, when this blockade that was started by the Saudis and continues to be coordinated by the Saudis, this blockade that stopped food going into Yemen, Save the Children say that 85,000 kids have died, 85,000 children. You think how upset we've been about the 50 terrible deaths in Christchurch. I think 85,000 is so many deaths you can hardly bear to think about it. But yet we're selling weapons to the country that's responsible for the blockade that is responsible for these deaths. And what's even more, in the week that we found out that the government was giving $36 million to subsidise the company making the weapons, we were also giving an additional $3 million to help food aid to Yemen. So with one hand we help create war and then the other hand we give a token gesture of donation to deal with the children that are dying. Other countries have more ethics. Germany, Finland, the Netherlands and Denmark have stopped selling weapons to the Saudis. In the UK, the House of Lords have declared that weapon sales to the Saudi Arabia is unlawful, and the UK, US American House of Representatives has voted last month to end weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Not only are they doing appalling things in Yemen, they've got a long history of war crimes at home, human rights abuses, and the extrajudicial killing of Jamal Khashoggi got a lot of press coverage last year. Coming back to Victoria now, the Victorian government boasts that they have many contracts, on several contracts from the Lockheed Martin plane, the joint, F-35 Joint Strike Fighter component contracts. These component contracts are tiny compared with the price that Australia is going to pay for these planes and I think are useful in terms of increasing Lockheed Martin's local influence so that they can ensure that the promised contracts actually will go ahead. A number of countries have committed to buying these joint strike fighter planes, including Canada. But then when Canada had an Auditor General report that was scathing about them, and I'll talk about this more later, uh, Lockheed Martin threatened the government with cancellation of these local contracts. So it's clear that these contracts are used as a lever to try and make sure the government goes through with purchasing these planes. The recent Avalon Air Show, and many people would be familiar there's an air show, but most people don't know that there's a big arms trade selling weapons event behind it, the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. Geelong City Council gives over half a million dollars to the organisers. The Victorian government and the federal government are also sponsors. 
when we, as the Medical Association for Prevention of War, put in freedom information applications for both the Victorian and the federal government, the Victorian government initially said, oh, no, nothing to see here, and initially denied it. But then when we put in an appeal, a formal appeal, suddenly a 26-page document has appeared that is commercial in confidence. We're appealing that as well, and we're still waiting. I mean, it takes months and months and months to get freedom information stuff. The federal government initially also denied um, being involved and then told us they're spending nearly $100,000 in organising what they were doing to help with the uh, arms trade fair. Again, we are appealing that because if they're spending 100, 100, nearly $100,000 in just organising it, what actually are the costs of them helping this event go ahead? The next topic I'd like to talk about is the damage to democracy and to elections. I know this is a bit of a spiel, but there is the, the, the pervasiveness of this militarism is really across all aspects of Australian society. I suppose, for example, I'm going to use Lockheed Martin. They're the biggest weapons company in the world. For many years, companies like Lockheed Martin have had factories spread across many congressional districts in the United States. Having many factories spread right across the country is not efficient, but it makes it easy to pressure congressmen, who have, particularly given they have a two-year electoral cycle, because if they don't vote for the company product, then they can threaten job losses locally, which is very clever strategically. Another piece of clever strategic positioning, again by Lockheed Martin, is that they put together the US national interest and Lockheed Martin's interest. So there is much written to say that what's in the American national interest is definitely in Lockheed Martin's interest. And interestingly, if you go to the Lockheed Martin Australia website, exactly the same is happening here. What's in Australia's national interest is in Lockheed Martin's interest. Clearly, what's in Lockheed Martin's interest is profit and the bottom line, and Australia's national interest is just a useful piece of marketing. As to the impact on our democracy in elections, well, in America, they have much better transparency and very rapid reporting of donations. We know that from 2016, for example, $19 million was spent on lobbying and donations to parliaments, to our congressmen and senators, and are particularly focused on Republicans and also particularly focused on those people who were serving in the Senate and Congress on the procurement committees, the defence procurement committees. In other words, the committees that choose what the American army is going to buy. So $19 million spent on persuading people. In Australia, we have really poor transparency regarding donations and lobbying, especially from companies. There's still $200 million from the 2016 election that's unaccounted for in terms of who it came from. In addition to the poor transparency about donations and lobbying, we also have what's called a revolving door of senior Defence Force officials and public servants and senior politicians going onto the boards of weapons companies when they retire. For example, Kim Beasley for a while was on the board of Lockheed Martin, ex-Defence Minister. Brendan Nelson, ex-Defence Minister on the board of Thales, the French company, nuclear weapons company. And there's plenty more. For instance, there's uh, a commander of the Navy and Air Fleet arm and secretaries of defence and secretaries of the Department of Veterans Affairs. So this is, from a lobbying point of view, highly dubious. These donations can distort who gets elected. If you've got more money, you can advertise better and also lead to distortion of defence procurement. There was considerable discussion when the South Australian submarines were purchased. Uh, people remember we were choosing largely between a, a French model and a Japanese model. And there was 
significant speculation by people who were pretty well informed that, in fact, the Japanese model was better suited for Australian purposes but would create less jobs in South Australia. The next sector I want to talk about is the education sector, and this is pretty pervasive as well in terms of that the weapons companies are now making donations to organisations like Questacon involved in science education, partnerships with many universities, and the Medical Association for Prevention of War has got a program on particularly focusing on Melbourne University, who's taking money from Lockheed Martin, as is RMIT. There's STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths education in schools, and particularly in South Australian secondary schools. So they're really moving into the sphere of influence into our education sector as well. Finally, the impact of this creeping militarism on Australia's self-reliance, in other words, its ability to defend itself. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a plane called the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, which um, has been hugely lobbied for. This plane was, we first signed up for contracts for this in 2002, so 16 years ago, at which point it was what they call vaporware. Vaporware is where you imagine something and then sell it and then try and build it. And so this plane back in 2002 was going to be a stealth plane, so very hard to detect going to be supersonic, it was going to have a short takeoff, it was going to be able to do vertical landings, and it was also going to be able to use integrated computer technology so that the planes, each, say you have four planes flying across, each of those planes can see what the other plane is seeing. So, fantastic, you beaut. Well, sadly, this plane is increasingly expensive. Australia is now spending $17 billion on it and likely to spend double that by the time it's finished. It's been heavily delayed. It's been technically deeply flawed. It's got many, many, many problems. And yet when people try and inquire into this, they're often told it's classified information. Australia is not involved in the quality control. It's outsourced our quality control to the US, who in turn have outsourced it largely to Lockheed Martin. To get information about the flaws of this plane, you could actually spend a day on the internet looking at what's the problems with this plane. James Weekly, which is a really... Uh, heavily respected, highly respected source on defence industry has got a very nice table outlining the many, many problems with this plane. Um, in fact, when, is it, when it flew Avalon two years ago, so the 2017 Avalon Air Show, there was public relief expressed that the plane had actually managed to get across the Pacific. Um, and um, these planes are highly problematic. The U.S. managed to sell the contracts to Italy, all the other, a lot of usual allies, Italy, England, Netherlands, Turkey, Canada, Denmark, Norway. In Canada, as I mentioned, the Auditor General had a really close look at these planes, was very scathing about them, and since then, Canada has had an open tender. And as I also mentioned, that means Lockheed Martin has been threatening the government with cancellation of contracts with Canadian companies. The RAND Corporation did a nice analysis saying that the plane had unrealistic cost estimates, the program schedule didn't allow for the complexity of the plane, the technology was immature, and there was insufficient allowance for the um, computer integration. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a very problematic plane. Even if all those things, the expenses, the delay, and the technically deeply flawed were not there, worst of all, is that this is a plane that's not designed for defence but for joint strikes. It's a surprisingly honest name. It's a joint strike fighter. So it's designed to go jointly with the US to strike other countries. 
this plane in when it was being tested was shot down by older, faster planes. So it's designed for attacks when it flies with F-22 Raptors. In other words, there are, is a different plane it needs to fly with to protect it when it's flying. However, the US will not sell F-22s to anyone. So these planes are designed to fly with US attacks. They're, as I said, shot down by older, faster planes. So we are having a massive expenditure that not only locks in dependence on the US military and has an unspoken commitment to join in future invasions and attacks for the next 30, 40 years with the US military, it also reduces the ability of Australia to defend itself. So it's pretty concerning that the power of the military lobby and the influence it can wield may in turn affect Australia's ability to defend itself. So, having depressed you all, what can you do? I think the best thing you can do is to, if you can, either email or better, in the order of effectiveness with your Member of Parliament, I would go email, write a handwritten letter, telephone, and then visit, the visit being best of all. And the things you could talk to him about would be how appalling it is that Australia sells weapons to Saudi Arabia and the urgent need to suspend weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, how poor it is that we are subsidising weapons companies, how important it is that we don't massively increase our defence spending, that we look closely at our defence spending and instead reflect on what we can do to improve our foreign aid and also our funding of diplomacy because they're cutting spending on diplomacy and that is really important work to prevent conflict. The other areas, if you've still got time to bend your Member of Parliament's ear, is to lobby for, in general, in the coming election, is for an independent commission against corruption, because we really need to hold Members of Parliament and public servants accountable. Undue influence is a big problem. Donations and lobby reform, we need transparency with donations, limits on donations, we need lobby reform so we can actually see parliamentarians' diaries, we can see who is meeting with them, we need regulation of lobbyists, we need regulation of the roles, public servants and defence personnel and politicians are not supposed to sort of whiz straight into the industry post-retirement because then they become very powerful lobbyists from very powerful positions. If you're involved in uh, university partnerships, if your university looks like it's partnering with a weapons company, go and challenge the Vice-Chancellor right to the board. If you're a member of the University of Melbourne, we have a particular campaign and you can go to the Medical Association for Prevention of War website and go to our campaigns page because for staff, alumni and students of Melbourne University, we are trying to put pressure on Melbourne University to stop taking money from Lockheed Martin, nuclear weapons manufacturer. So there's lots you can do, but mainly make sure that people realise this is a political issue and we need to be active on it. New Zealand's shown us a fabulous example of how to promote peace and Australia is currently promoting war. Finally, just to remember, President Eisenhower in 1961, in his final speech, warned the American public of the military-industrial complex. I think here in Australia we are facing a military-industrial, political and educational complex. And I think we need to recognise it, we need to name it, and we need to tell our members of parliament and our elected people that this is not acceptable and do what we can to get a more ethical and peace-loving society. And thanks very much to Dr Margie Beavis, who's the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, for putting all that information into a short speech. But there's so much that we need, all need to do 
to try and turn this around before it's too late. Art Auction Alert. Maralinga Pieces, forever on country, will celebrate decades of nuclear resistance and raise vital funds for Friends of the Earth's National Nuclear Free Campaign. Friday the 12th of April at Arena Project Space, 2 Kerr Street, Fitzroy. Live and silent auctions, bar, live music, doors open at 5.30pm, auction starts at 7 Featuring the works of over 60 artists, there's something for everyone. That's Friday, April 12, at Arena Project Space, 2 Kerr Street, Fitzroy, from 5.30pm. Friends of the Earth Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Next, the second part of the interview with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy focusing on the dire situation in the Philippines. Last week, Peter spoke about the numerous organisations and individuals targeted by Duterte's military and police. One he mentioned was Karapatan, and I asked him who this organisation was and who were those involved. Karapatan was uh, founded in 1995, so that's already like 27 years ago. And um, it came out of another group called Task Force Detainees, which was founded around 1980 uh, in the Marcos time. It's it's really a very big organisation of uh, mainly of volunteers, but it has coordinators in every uh, province, and uh, it's got sort of chapters which cover regions of the country. So it's it's, a, it's definitely an organisation which attempts to be systematic and thorough in recording incidents of human rights abuses and then tallying up and compiling you know reports annually it also issues action alerts and also has a mechanism to have a rapid response team so say um, let me think of a recent case say a priest was uh, shot dead just at the end of mass you know, in Weaver, uh, ASEA last year. So they would be able to send a team to the scene within uh, hours of the report of, of that type of event and be able to interview witnesses and uh, therefore get a uh, verifiable report of what took place and then record it clearly. This, this is its capacity, and uh, this is why I think the military and police threaten it uh, so severely these days, because they've not given in. You know, they haven't um, uh, collapsed their organisation under the threats, and, and quite a few members of Karapatan have been killed in this last two years. It's really uh, heart-wrenching to, to hear those reports and to listen to the relatives of them those victims talking about what happened. So 
Karapatan, uh, I'm not sure how many thousand people are involved in its structures, but it is thousands of people. They're very uh, selfless, clearly. And uh, I have been in one situation in Mindanao where the bishop of the IFI was the local president of Karapatan, and uh, we were visiting an area where a Canadian mining company was basically seizing lands of uh, indigenous people. And, um, you know, I, I was reading the report. The briefing notes said that uh, at least 120 people have been killed since the mining company got the right to, to explore and uh, mine that area. And um, I was astounded, really, because that's a very big number of people to have been murdered. And uh, the bishop said, actually, you know, it's more. But everybody here in this, it's a relatively remote place, are so terrified that we, we can't get people to uh, make a sworn statement that we can then present in a court or, you know, try to get a uh, arrest warrant for the perpetrators. So um, that's the level of danger and the level of terror that's actually working in the countryside and that's the sort of work that Karapatan does. That is, they'll go to that place, they will at least find out, you know, the names of the people who have been killed, the circumstances in which it happened, and try to keep some kind of tally or measure of what's really taking place. But uh, uh, they run into their limits, of course, because of the fear. Is that where the International Criminal Court and the United Nations independent experts should be moving in to fill that void? <coughs> yes, I... I think uh, it's politically so difficult for the international community because of the relationship between the United States and the Philippines. But the war on drugs has been a sort of shift in the intensity and tempo of um, human rights abuses in the Philippines. And uh, the International Criminal Court is making a preliminary assessment of the information about that, which could lead to... A active investigation and then a prosecution of President Duterte. But it's about the war on drugs. It's not about killing peasant leaders, priests, journalists, uh, lawyers and so on. So, you know, there's definitely still a sharp distinction in attitude from the international community about what they're willing to really complain about in the Philippines. So uh, Australia's playing a role in that. Uh, unfortunately, because of our own military agreement with the Philippines government and our own you know, deeper, stronger relationship with the United States. So for geopolitical reasons, governments, whether Labor or Liberal in Australia, turn a blind eye, basically, to, to these sort of events. They seem to make private complaints to the Foreign Secretary of the Philippines and maybe even to the President from time to time but they never publicly complain. That means that nothing is raised publicly in the uh, UN Security Council and uh, so far no state has asked the International Criminal Court to do anything, even though it's so obvious that the national judicial system in the Philippines cannot address this situation. Peter, just expand on the aid that Australia is giving what I would call the, the killing machine of the Philippines military. What is that aid? Yes. Well, uh, the Australian Defence Department 
provides high level training in Australia to 150 plus Filipino military officers every year. So um, it's a very significant long term relationship building commitment from our side to the Philippine military and uh, there's a sort of a fig leaf about it that they, if I, as I do, I've, I've talked to people in the Department of Foreign Affairs and uh, in the Office of the Minister of Foreign Affairs and they will say, like they do in relation to Indonesia or Myanmar, that uh, we're providing professional training, including human rights and international law training to these officers and we hope that it means that they will act in an ethical fashion when it's so obvious that they're not, you know. So I would say it's significant military help in that regard. And then uh, in the budgets papers for last year, it showed that uh, Australia was also providing $40 million uh, in military aid to the Philippines. So we're the second biggest supplier of military aid after the United States to the Philippines Army. So uh, it's, I think the US aid is quite a lot more, like 300 million US dollars, so maybe you know, it's, it's 380 million Australian dollars or something like that, so 10 times as much. But uh, when you look at that, you'd have to say that the United States and Australia bear a great responsibility for the ongoing atrocities you know, carried out by the military and police in the Philippines. And uh, one particular, I mean, there's been an escalation of Australian aid in the sense that uh, at least 80 special forces were sent to the Philippines at the end of 2017 by the Turnbull government to provide training in urban warfare to the Philippines Army. So following the destruction of Marawi City in, in Mindanao in 2017, looks like we're equipping them to do the same to another city soon and uh, it's it's a, just an unbelievable policy option that seems to have been taken but uh, that's what's happened it's allegedly uh, all to fight Islamic terrorism but that's that's clearly not the war that's actually happening in the Philippines which is it's much more a war about land and the rights of uh, indigenous people and farmers so um, yeah, I think Australia and the United States are completely on the wrong side of the, the people and their rights uh, in this situation. And just the fact, too, that our mainstream media or corporate media doesn't inform the people of Australia of all these things that you've been talking about. People are no. in the dark. That's right. We had one really quite colourful and uh, interesting report in the Sydney Morning Herald when uh, obviously defence embedded a journalist with this uh, special forces group doing the urban warfare training. So, you know, there was, there was quite a bit of detail at uh, different places they'd performed the training, what they, you know, t teaching people how to blow up uh, internal walls of houses and so on. But um, apart from that type of effort, which is completely controlled by the military, there's no, nothing much coming. There's no um, Australian journalist posted to Manila so it's sort of all second hand 
And in general, I think uh, the Australian media has had to reduce its uh, placement of journalists all around the world, including in Southeast Asia. So often there's just one journalist in Singapore, say, or maybe one in Jakarta. And uh, if something happens in the Philippines, they have to fly in. Uh, and you can see that it'll be pretty, you know, superficial what they can do in, in such a working arrangement. They can't really follow all the details of uh, the uh, combat that's going on among the elite themselves, uh, what's really happening in the Congress, and, and certainly, you know, what's happening in remote parts of the countryside. That's, that's very, very difficult. And... Um, you know, even people like me, I, I, I've been visiting the Philippines for short trips of two weeks, three weeks at a time, you know, since 1989, so this is uh, 30 years, and but now I'm, I'm no longer able to travel there. I'm on a blacklist, and, and several other Australians have been placed on a blacklist. So the capacity of people like me to be a witness, you know, at the civilian level is also being cut off. So, you know, this is, I think, a very ominous development that Duterte is determined to shut down international scrutiny of what he's doing and he's going to intensify the repression, you know, in these new circumstances. A big worry. Are deportations of non-citizens still happening? I haven't heard of one recently, but, uh, you know, Sister Patricia Fox was not deported in the end, but uh, she, she left the country just before they would deport her in October last year and uh, Professor Gil Boringer was deported in July last year. He landed trying to visit his wife and uh, was turned around. Uh, he was held in, in Manila Airport for a week but, um, but was sent back to Australia. So for now, I don't think he can travel there at all. Yeah, so uh, in his case, uh, as the lawyers fought it out, uh, this blacklist emerged with the names of... Uh, for uh, other Australians on it, so that's the actual situation. Not a good situation all round. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think uh, really bad, and uh, I hope, uh, you know, obviously we're having a federal election and uh, there is a, a chance of a change of government, and I hope that there's more willingness uh, in the next government to really do something more strenuous about uh, the rights of people, I'm not so much worried about my right to travel, which which I should have, but no, the rights of uh, people in the Philippines to be safe, to actually have a life, very, very basic human right. We shouldn't have a government that subsidises their murder. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Jan. And that's Peter Murphy from Sydney, who's a trade union and human rights activist. And the more you hear about the activities of the Australian government and their cohorts, it just makes you ashamed more and more of what they do in our name and you think what we must be absolute pariahs to many countries around the world now because they know what we're doing even if the people here don't know a lot. It's 4.55 and this is 3CR and it's 855 on your old radio it's 3CR on your digital. You could be listening on your computer, streaming, 3cr.org.au, or you could be listening on demand right now. And if you'd like to have a look at this program or any other program, this podcast, that's what happens. They're into your computer each week 
and you can watch them, listen to them at leisure. And again, that is 3cr.org.au. March 16, the Sentani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains, also poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chaforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association and I'd like to start, Kate, today looking at Algeria, where the camps are for the refugees. They're out in the desert in Algeria. After two decades in power, the President, Bouteflika, has finally been forced to step down after weeks of mass protests And I'm wondering, and I dare say the people in Western Sahara are wondering too, what that new government will mean for them, the people particularly in those camps in the desert in Algeria. 
I think that the Saharawis will be certainly wondering how things are going to turn out for them with a new regime that I think is still based on the military and they will be waiting to see who turns out to be the exact person in charge or you know, with the real power. Meanwhile, I saw today that uh, an American diplomat called David Hale is visiting and will be talking uh, with the Algerian authorities about various matters, but it's believed that it will include the question of in changing the or extending the mandate of MINURSO to include human rights monitoring. It will be looking for their support as a neighbour. In the uh, talks that are going on uh, as well, the uh, Algeria and Mauritania are always included in the, alongside the two parties of Morocco and the Polisario Front in these uh, peace talks. So it's important for Algeria to agree that there should be a capacity for the United Nations mission to monitor human rights abuses in the occupied territory. The, uh, on these very days, the, uh, the 9th and the 10th of April, the Security Council will be itself considering the report of the Secretary-General of the United Nations, who's just written a six-monthly report. And, and so this question will be raised. And I believe that he was also talking to the Moroccans about it. And so they are being very much strong-marched into a position where they have to agree to make concessions. And this is one of the goodwill, one of the things that they could do to show goodwill in and really meaning to build peace with the Sahrawis by allowing this um, human rights monitoring to take place. I'd imagine, Kate, that there wouldn't be too many UN missions that haven't got human rights in their charter. That's right, exactly. And there's, there's, I think there are, you know, this has often been made, the claim has been made and then people come up with some kind of exceptions to that rule. But it is pretty much the only one, I believe. There are a few others that, for different circumstances, didn't have it. But, yes, it should certainly be part of, of what they're there for. And it has been really a disappointment and a disgrace that at, on occasions they've been witnessing these things and they haven't been able to report back about it or do anything about it. So, yeah. Let's look at some court decisions. There's a, a decision by the... British High Court and there's a decision by the European EU Parliament and they seem to contradict each other. They do. The European Parliament, for reasons that uh, I suppose panders to their own constituencies and no doubt because of lobbying, very strenuous lobbying by Moroccan lobbyists, they agreed to include Western Sahara in the fishing agreement. It's not difficult to understand why, because most of the fishing grounds are off the coast of Western Sahara. But it does contravene the highest court of Europe, the Court of Justice of the European Union, which ruled that this couldn't happen. 
And so really the European Parliament is in contradiction with its court. And yet fortunately the British High Court, which had referred a matter raised in Britain by the Western Sahara Campaign UK, making a complaint against the UK Agriculture and Fisheries and the Customs uh, Authority about the uh, trade agreement with Morocco and they'd referred it back to Europe and now in, in light of the European Court of Justice's ruling they have now implemented that and so now goods from Western Sahara will not be included in any trade agreement made with Morocco. And this just sort of emphasises the, the, the amount of resources that are being stolen from Western Sahara. That's true. That's true. The, uh, the, the, the fish are still abundant. They sh- do need to be carefully uh, safeguarded, though, because it's very easy for overfishing to happen. But the, the, at the moment, it's still the case that there is abundant fishing on that coast. And But the... The phosphate has changed a little bit. The phosphate um, mine, which has given tons and tons and millions of tons and, and continues to give millions of tons of, of export for Morocco, which is, according to international law, illegal. It should be only done with the consent of the Sahrawi people and, and for their benefit. And this isn't happening, but... The uh, Western Sahara Resource Watch has just issued the latest report on 2018 in uh, wsrw.org. You can look for this new report. It's called P for Plunder, and it tells what's happened in the last year. It's a very beautifully produced report, nice charts and photographs and everything, so it's well worth looking at. And, of course, we have New Zealand still accepting fertiliser from Morocco, which is Western Sahara's phosphate. And Jacinta Ahern had actually been to Western Sahara. Yes. And now the campaign is sort of focusing a little bit on her. It is, where they're very much asking her to take a stand on this. It is clearly a bit difficult for her because farming is part of the lifeblood of of New Zealand and the farmers have all been using this superphosphate based on the rock that comes from uh, Western Sahara. However, we know that Jakinda Ardern is quite capable of undertaking difficult issues. We've seen evidence of that recently and we have therefore reason to hope that she might intercede in a useful way and help these farmers' cooperatives. There's two cooperatives, Ravens Down and Balance Agri-Nutrients, to help both of them find a way of providing for their farmers without using this particular rock. Is it known why she went to the camps in the desert? She was the president of an international student uh, organisation and that's uh, it was in that capacity that she went yeah 
UN denounced the construction of a sand wall by Morocco. Now, there's already a sand wall there, isn't there? That's right. It's an interesting one. But I haven't really understood why, but there are two places where they've decided to build additional walls just in the last few months. One of them is long enough for them to build one that's 80 kilometres long and another one that's 30 kilometres in the south. The one in the the north might even, I can't remember, but they, they've been asked to disable the wall, to not have any personnel on it or armed army, army or whatever, and they haven't actually done it yet, uh, I gather. Is it a land grab? I don't know that it's a land grab. I think that, again, the... Peace talks have led the UN to start looking at different ways in which both parties could show willing to the other party that they are willing to have a real peace and not just do the odd little gesture. And so I think the question of the wall must surely be uh, in their minds. Yes, whether the Morocco was thinking, well, if we have to demolish the military wall, the big berm, maybe we still need some protection against smugglers. That's what they say it's for. They say it's against smugglers and criminals. But uh, a wall that is only so long has still got two ends that you can get around. So I don't know that that's, I don't understand that that could really be effective. But that's what they're saying, that it's, it's not anything to do with military, it's nothing to do with the Sahrawi question, it's just to protect them from smugglers. In the desert in Algeria, where the, the camps are, there's been a recent marathon? Yes, they hold this marathon on the National Day, the 26th of February, and... It's quite a grueling marathon, and there are the uh, sort of professional marathon runners like to do it because it's so demanding. But as well as the proper marathon runners in, uh, who do it, there are other shorter runs of, of five or ten kilometres. And I'm not sure which one she did, but one of the runners this year was this wonderful human rights ambassador, really, for Western Sahara called Catherine Constantinides. She's a former uh, Miss Universe, yeah, something like that, and she's from South Africa, and she, recent, she only came to understand about the Sahrawi issue about five or years or so ago, but she's um, become a very vocal ambassador and supporter for them, both in fora like the United Nations, the Human Rights Council, and this was the first marathon she's ever run, and she's sort of got the physique for it, but I think she may not have had the training for it. I don't know how she got on, and as I say, it's pretty hard because it's in February it's not quite as hot as it would have been at other times. And it's just sort of coming into the spring for them. But it still 
relentless sun and it must be quite hard. And they're running on fairly rough, rocky, rocky desert. So uh, it's not a sandy desert so much, it's rocky. Yes, mostly, mostly the parts that I've seen anyway. And uh, she said that she was dedicating her marathon or maybe the money that she had managed to raise through doing it, she was giving to the landmine victims, the Sahrawi landmine victims here. Another singer, Western Saharan singer, is this one of the ones that have been to Australia? She is, yes, yes. She came not just to the uh, WOMAD, but she came to Melbourne as well to the Brunswick Music Festival a couple of years ago. And Aziza Brahim, she gave a concert concert that maybe many people will have gone to because the Brunswick Town Hall was full. And she was scheduled to take part in a festival called the Arabo Folie at the Institute of at the Arab World in Paris, which is sort of just on the left bank near the end of the Notre Dame. Island, or, or no, no, not the the Ile de la, yeah, the yes, but near the back of the uh, Notre Dame, very centrally placed, very conspicuous building. But the Moroccans found out that she was going to be performing, and they lobbied the sponsors who threatened to withdraw their sponsorship if she was going to take part. And so Jack Lang, who I think is the director of this institute, is a former, despite his very Anglo-sounding name, Jack Lang, he is a former French uh, minister, uh, maybe minister of culture, but he is known to be very pro-Moroccan, and, and he pulled the show. However, other supporters of Aziza came to the fore and they rescheduled it in another venue called Pan Piper and that will take place on the 26th of April. So it should. She's a wonderful singer. Yes. I think it's called Songs of My of Exile or something like that, that her name, her show. So what's the tensions between Morocco and Saudi Arabia got to do with Western Sahara? Oh, it's just a silly story really that... Uh, that they are always sort of looking for stirring up trouble, the Moroccan press and the Moroccan propaganda, and and they what did they do? They said that Iran maybe or somebody was financing the Polisario Front, and it wasn't true anyway. But it's uh, it's just part of the sort of um, background. Uh, hostilities that take place in the Cold War around uh, the whole issue and I guess that again if they're going to show good faith in these peace talks that kind of thing is going to have to stop The United Nations Human Rights Council that had its meeting, its yearly meeting in March this year Morocco and Western Sahara were on the agenda, were they? Oh, they were, and uh, there were some very uh, good, important uh, symposia around there too. They brought some human rights defenders from the occupied ter- territory. 
Brahim Sabar, I think, was one of them, a, a person I've met. That's right. They're, they're, they have isolated the different human rights situations that require the council, the human rights council's attention, and some of those pertain to Western Sahara. Landmine clearance is one of the things, and the uh, Saharawis were commended for having destroyed the last of their collection of landmines in a goodwill gesture, but now they are asking, calling on Morocco to allow the region to be cleaned, cleared of landmines. There's millions and millions. Estimates vary between 5 and 10 million landmines, the length of this wall. It's not a high wall, but it's a dangerous wall because it's got 200 metres of landmines on each side, as well as various other barbed wire and surveillance and so on. But uh, Morocco is being called on to, to do that, and they won't release the... They should have taken uh, maps of where they laid the mines in the first place, and they won't release that information even though it's of limited use because over so many years the landmines can move in storms and, uh, and they don't always, aren't to be found where they thought they would have been. Is it true that landmines don't lose their potency over the years? They say just as lethal as long as they're in the ground? Well, yes, I mean, it, it may be that over many more hundreds of years they might, but... Certainly the landmines are still very, that are there, that have been laid in the 1980s, are still very, only too potent, as I'm afraid the Saharawis know, both through losses to their stock, because the, nomad, the people, the pastoral nomads, are in that area, and their animals don't know where the minefields are. The people can perhaps see where there's been little little uh, rings of, of rocks around where they think the landmines are. And so people know sometimes not to go there. But on the other hand, there are people who find mines that haven't been identified and there many Saharawis are losing limbs almost every month, I should think, there'd be somebody with an injury due to landmines. There's no mine clearing program? There is a mine clearing program and and, uh, I've forgotten the name of which organisation but there's several organisations that do this work and one lot of them are working on the Saharawi side of the wall but the Moroccan side I believe has not been cleared. I just wonder about these companies or countries that actually manufacture these mines over the mm. years and the <laughs> lack of moral whatever. Yes, oh indeed. Because it is illegal now, isn't it? It has been banned. I believe it is, that's right. Mm. But the uh, uh, unfortunately the manufacture of weapons of all kinds is very lucrative and governments find it quite hard to get off that as they find it hard to get off gambling and other ways of making money that are frowned upon by ethically minded people. Now, we've talked before about the the very brave young people who produce videos and photos. 
in the occupied territory, they get up behind a brick wall and they find a hole in the wall and they get their camera or their phone and they make up a, a video of, of what's happening, especially when there's a demonstration. They've won an award? They have, and it tends to be known by its French name, Equipe Media, but this group produce their reports in four languages, which is pretty remarkable, in French, English, Spanish, and, of course, Arabic. And they've done a tremendous job in trying to provide information about what's happening in Western Sahara, particularly the persecution of Sahrawi, and whenever they come out to have a little demonstration calling for independence or calling for a referendum of self-determination, their de- demonstration hardly gets underway before the Moroccan uh, police come and break it up. And this, these are the kinds of things that they will be photographing and there are brave Sahrawis with flags that they know will be a red rag to the to the bull, but uh, they bring out their flags and then they get beaten and and harassed by the Moroccan police. And Egypt uh, media take photographs, they take videos, and when they get caught, their cameras are impounded. So there was a little another little. Uh, documentary made about them called Three Cameras and and it tells the story of cameras being given by a Swedish uh, NGO and uh, the, the sort of fate of each of these cameras and how it got impounded. Another film that's been made about this group called Rifles or Graffiti is going to be shown here in Melbourne at the Melbourne Filmoteca which usually runs for, with in conjunction with ACME, but as the ACME in Fed Square is being closed for a while to do refurbishments, the f- uh, screening is actually going to take place in the Treasury Theatre. Further details later, because it's not until the 18th of June, but take note about that. However, it was just this weekend, on the 7th of April, that they went to Cordova to received their award. It's called the Julio Anguista Parado International Journalism Award and it recognises the defence of human rights by journalists, international journalists of any creed or culture and uh, especially when their work is carried out in areas of conflict. Just wondering how they got out to go and accept that. Yes, Myra, Mohammed Myra, who's the founder of Ikeep Media, he went and, and one other, two people went to receive the award. I thought they might have been stopped at the airport. They might have be hassled on the way back. That's another way that they do it. Sometimes they, they don't cause the, the, the trouble at the beginning and, uh, and, and then they hassle them afterwards. Nevertheless, Kate, it's a good story. It's a very uh, good story, and it's uh, they their work does deserve reward, definitely. And thanks to Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Earlier, I spoke with Jessica Marison, the executive officer of APAN, Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, 
which has recently celebrated eight years of important work. I asked Jessica first how it came into being and what it's been involved in during those eight years. So I wasn't around at the birth of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, but there's some amazing stories from people who really saw that Israel had a unified, coordinated national voice, but the Palestinians didn't. So they got together and had a whole lot of conversations with a whole lot of different people around the country, unions, churches, retired diplomats, kind of obviously Palestinians and Jewish people, lots of people that were concerned. And eight years ago, just in the last week, there was a meeting at the MUA offices in Melbourne uh, where the organisation was formally born. So there were just 27 people at that point. And now there's the networks in, uh, in contact with thousands and thousands and have many hundreds of formal members. But it, it's the vision that together we are stronger. United we stand, divided we fall. So it was the bold vision, and it's still a bit bold and daring, I think, um, to think that all the people who care about Palestine can work together in one network and have one unified voice. So I think in those eight years we've been really amazed at the ability to be a go-to person for media, to really support grassroots activism around the country and support coordination of that, um, as well as being known and respected in parliaments around the country. So if they want to hear the Palestinian voice, and in fact even if they don't want to hear the Palestinian voice, that we're in there and that perspective is being heard. I'd imagine that the Zionist movement isn't too happy about APAN. No, it's been really exciting in the last couple of years that they talk about the Palestine lobby. Now, I kind of look around over my shoulders and think, oh, you mean us? We're actually being seen as a threat. And last year in the lead-up to the ALP National Conference, what I realised is all the things that they were talking about was trying to challenge our views about what had happened. So it was like, oh, my goodness, we've actually got on the front foot on a few occasions. So that's been really exciting. And how did it go at the ALP Conference late last year? For well, it was, it was really exciting for us. So we've been pushing for the ALP not to just use the same old tired phrases of we support a two-state peaceful solution negotiated between the parties when actually nothing's happening. So we really encourage them to take the next step, which is a diplomatic symbolic step, which would be for Australia to formally um, establish diplomatic relations with, with Palestine, equal to that of Israel. So we're to, you know, that's called the recognition of Palestine. So we called on the Labor Party to commit to recognising Palestine in government. And we got pretty close, like most things at the ALP National Conference. We got lots of what we wanted, which is that the ALP said that they will, they call on the next Labor government to recognise Palestine and that it should be a priority for the government. So that's really exciting and sent shockwaves through certainly the Zionist lobby here and also Israel, that actually one of its staunchest allies, Australia, because Australia is, you know, out there with Trump, really, in terms of how supportive we are of Israel, that even in Australia, they've had jack of Israel continuing to stymie peace negotiations. And even in Australia, they're saying, well, we've had enough, we're going to recognise Palestine. And an important part of your work is the tour, the yearly tour to not only Palestine but also to parts of Israel as well? Yeah, we've taken quite a number of tours um, to the area and about 18 months ago we took um, the biggest ever parliamentary tour to Palestine which was all Labor politicians. So we really think that made a significant impact 
Even on those that were already supportive of Palestine, which is a story of many of us, we support Palestinians in principle and see the logic of their argument. But when you're sitting there face to face with an Israeli soldier or seeing the way that the settlements cut up the West Bank or the daily humiliation that Palestinians suffer at checkpoints, that just puts a fire in your belly that's almost impossible to put out. Have you been on one of those tours? Yeah, I've been to the West Bank three times now. And, um, yeah, it, it never fails to shock and horrify me, really, in terms of what's happening with the tacit support of our government. And so we're really excited that that's starting to be eroded here in Australia and that they're saying, no, we're not going to support occupation or apartheid. Let's begin. There's a lot of things to talk about. Let's begin with the, the Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights. Yeah. It's against international law for a start, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Trump's announcement a couple of weeks ago now is just another one of his random thought bubbles, but he's very consistent with his decision on, on Jerusalem last year. So in 1967, in what's known as the Six-Day War, Israel unilaterally claimed by military force all of the West Bank, all of Jerusalem, the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt and the Golan Heights from Syria. So that's in 1967, and, and almost straight away there were UN resolutions calling them to withdraw because, you know, in 1967, by then, you couldn't just take something by military conquest and claim it as yours, a little bit like Russia and Crimea. So the world called them to withdraw. They said, oh, we will when there's a peace deal, blah, 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 blah. In the 1980s, they formally withdrew from the Sinai Peninsula and Egypt got sovereignty of that territory back, but they haven't done that with the Golan Heights. So it's been occupied since 1967, annexed since the 80s, and ever since that moment, the whole world has called them to, to withdraw, a little bit like Jerusalem. <laughs> In fact, exactly like Jerusalem and the West Bank. Trump last year said, no, nah, no, nah, Israel can have Jerusalem. Now he's saying Israel can have the Golan Heights. So the, the, the third bit that's left is the West Bank. Like, is that what Trump's going to say next? You know, we don't care if you claim, you know, total sovereignty over the West Bank. So, look, it, it seems to be a, an announcement aimed at appeasing um, Donald Trump's domestic audience, many of whom who, see, who are fundamentalist Christians, who see support of Israel as their spiritual duty, rather than a smart legal, you know, or, or diplomatic decision. Australian government hasn't followed that, has it? No, we haven't said anything. So, and, but, I mean, there have been some condemnations of the decision, but a little bit like his decision on Jerusalem, nothing's actually looking like happening. But it's not only a land grab, is it? It's much more than that. Yeah, look, I mean, it certainly is a, it's a strategic piece of real estate. So it sits bordering, um, well, it's part of Syria, so it borders Israel, Jordan and Lebanon. And it's the Golan Heights, so it sits up high, it's a mountain top, and it's also the start of the Jordan River. So it's an incredibly strategically important piece of land. And it has been certainly used a lot in the last few years in terms of Israel using it as a military post to be able to both monitor and launch strikes into Syria. And like the West Bank, they've colonised it. They've moved 2,000 Israeli Jews into 34 settlements. Um, and have got 167 businesses, um, including Israel's only ski resort. <laughs> so Israel's absolutely showing, a little bit like the West Bank, that they've got no intention of returning land. The difficulty is when the world superpower says that they don't care. 
And again, harking back to Crimea, you know, it's hard to imagine that Trump would say the same thing about Russia. You know, sure, whatever, you've had it for a while now, we'll accept that Crimea is now part of Russia. And they've also used the Golan Heights as part of their war against Syria. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So they've launched airstrikes and, I mean, it's, they're all very, very small patches of land. So, you know, you can often see a long, long way uh, over the border. So it's a very militarily strategic position there. The UN Human Rights Council had its meeting in March and they met yeah. to investigate the human rights situation in Palestine. Was there a particular foci? Yeah, there was. So, as we know, we've just hit the first anniversary of the protest in Gaza with the Great Return March, with the Gazans amassing near the border saying we need the right to return to our land. 70% of people in Gaza are actually refugees from other places within Palestine. So, they started their protest in March. By May, there had been so much horrendous footage of the carnage that Israeli snipers were um, making that the UN Human Rights Council voted that they would have a fact-finding mission to look in all human rights violations. But I guess the world was particularly shocked about what Israel was doing. So 31 nations were on that body at that point. The US has withdrawn since that time. But there were two countries that said that they didn't support an independent fact-finding mission about human rights abuses. One was the US and, disappointingly, the other one was Australia. So they released their um, report in uh, February and then a full report in March. Um, but they certainly found that there's reasonable grounds that Israeli security forces committed serious violations of human rights, particularly around targeting people that were obviously civilians, including journalists, medic teams, children and people with disabilities. So, you know, Israel's found, again to have committed human rights violations, breached international law. This will go into part of the International Criminal Court considerations of Israel's actions. So certainly they're looking into it in The Hague. The Human Rights Commission asked Israel to investigate all these killings, but given that Israel didn't even cooperate with the fact-finding mission itself, we can't see that Israel's actually going to do that. And it's not just the killings, Jessica, it's the number of injured. I read a report saying that... Up to 28,000 had been injured and 15,000 treated in hospital and created a great number of of young men on crutches now because they shoot at their legs. Absolutely, absolutely. The sort of crowd dispersal tactics, quote-unquote, that they use have been incredibly vicious. But, yeah, they have also... I mean, Israel's learnt that casualty numbers count Um, and so a lot of the firing has been into people's legs. So there's 150 people um, who've been crippled, like who, who've needed amputations or been completely paralysed. But certainly at, at least 6,500 people have been directly affected by live fire. So they've been shot, 6,500 people. So as you say, many of those are paralysed, left maimed, without use of limbs. And particularly for young men, it's a striking blow. And I think that was what Israel was trying to do, inflict... Um, and the Human Rights Commission would seem to be supporting that, the maximum amount of damage with the least amount of publicity. And we're all aware of the, the lack of medical supplies that are already in the Gaza Strip. You can imagine yep. every week with more and more, mainly young people, coming into those hospitals that have virtually got no resources to help them. Yeah, and look, you can imagine 
what on earth it must be like to be in Gaza that life is so dire that you're willing to week after week after week go back to protest because as I say it's better to live on your feet than die on your knees and people in Gaza are literally dying. 80% of women with breast cancer die from that whereas hardly anybody does here in Australia because we have the facilities to treat it. So things in Gaza are absolutely die in terms of you know access to medical treatment but 95 percent of the water inside gaza is unfit for drinking you know 80 percent of the population rely on international aid for their day-to-day life like things are dire and they're dire in this slow moving catastrophe so i think the gazans have realized that until things are escalated then the world kind of stops noticing yeah, which is certainly what, what Martin Luther King, if you think about lots of what he said, is actually it's very easy for the peace to be kept and for us not to look at situations of injustice. And I think in the world's largest open-air prison, that couldn't be truer. I just applaud the bravery of these Gazans who go unarmed, and the vast majority are completely unarmed, who go and face Israeli snipers week after week to beg you know, they're captors for a release. BDS, that's one way, a, a big way of international groups to focus on what actually is happening there and to try and force the, the hand of the Israelis. And, and it has been working in plenty of places because the Israelis are really fighting back against BDS, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, in all sorts of ways. And BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, led by the biggest group of Palestinian civil society groups ever who have come together, is the way for all of us to say that until Israel complies with international law, then it can't be business as usual, both for companies inside Israel, but those uh, companies that seek to make money out of what's happening inside Israel. So it's really a thing, it's, an, it's a kind of a name and shame kind of approach <clears throat> and calling on businesses to have a higher moral framework than that. And certainly like we saw in South Africa, the way that it became a pariah state because of mass global um, action. So it's the same sort of thing. You know, we're not wanting to attack fundamentally anybody's right to exist. Uh, just as we weren't, nobody was fighting against South Africa's right to exist. But we did fight against a country who, who ran an apartheid state, and that's what BDS is right now. So there's all sorts of things that come under the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. One of the big uh, focuses at the moment is the Eurovision campaign, because Eurovision will be held in Israel in May. But there's certainly many other forms that that takes. Famously in, in Australia, there was um, Professor Jake Lynch, who said that he wouldn't work with Israeli academics and he was taken to the federal court by this kind of crazy nutter group called Sharat Houdin and they took him to court saying that he he was being racially discriminating. So, you know, that's that's the sort of pushback often people have. And I think, you know, whenever people are fighting back against you, you know you've got a tactic that hurts. And Israel just desperately wants to be seen as an everyday citizen. So I think what BDS says is until Israel you comply with international law, we won't see you as an everyday international citizen. What's planned for the next year for APAN? Yeah, so we certainly want to see the ALP implement its decision to recognise Palestine. So that will be one of the big important political outcomes that we're looking for. 
And when the new government comes in after the election, we certainly want to continue to build parliamentary allies for Palestine. We've seen an incredible explosion of people who both support Palestine and are willing to stand up and be counted as Palestine supporters in the parliament. So we'll keep doing that with this new parliament that comes and look for real action. And we're hoping that the new government will be much stronger in terms of standing up for Palestinian human rights. But of course, it's not it's not a government that's going to save us. The only reason that governments move is that there's a people movement behind it. So I really encourage people to come connect with APAN, apan.org.au, and we have lots of community campaigns. There's wonderful grassroots groups whose acti activities that we support. So there'll be all sorts of things happening around the community to continue to support Palestinians in their resistance and to educate one another about what we can do. Also, um, there's a group called BDS Australia um, who are campaigning in the lead-up to Eurovision in May. So that's bdsaustralia.net.au. And um, they're doing lots of stuff to use the, the moment of Eurovision to really focus on what's happening to Palestinians. And I'd imagine there are similar APANs and BDS Australias in other countries as well. Absolutely. Yeah, so there's groups working all around and people are doing all sorts of things. So Iceland, for example, their group that they're sending to Eurovision is a BDSM techno band um, who are very strong on their support for Palestinian human rights. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to go to Eurovision and, and use it as a protest. But yeah, there's been protests in Ireland and all across um, the UK and other countries in Europe, protests calling on public broadcasters not to broadcast Eurovision. But SBS hasn't res responded here in Australia, though. No, interestingly, their only uh, their only response has been to threaten the group because of misuse of their logo. So on the protest, a protest that was there uh, outside SBS last year, they used the SBS logo as part of their uh, I don't know, it was a Facebook post or something, I think. And SBS, you know, threatened to sue them for um, misusing their logo. It would be amazing to, for SBS to actually stand strong and say that they won't be part of this uh, brand Israel, which certainly Eurovision will be this year. And of course you've got to realise where SBS's mainly money comes from, it's the Australian government, isn't it? Absolutely, but also SBS has a mandate for supporting human rights and being fair. And, you know, given the sort of money that's going into Israeli propaganda at the moment, you know, there's certainly an argument to be made that Australia's been complicit in supporting Israel's self-promotion. I'd just like to finish off Jessica by pointing out that it's not just Palestinians and other Australians, but the, there are a, quite a number of the Jewish community here in Australia who support and are part of APN. Yeah, absolutely. APN's really excited to be a broad coalition and a really diverse coalition with diverse politics and diverse ideas, and we welcome all of those. So it's great to have Jewish people involved. It's great to have religious people and atheists involved. It's great to have unionists and feminists and um, racial rights campaigners. Like, it's, it's a really broad coalition, APAN, and it is really important to have Jewish people involved, partly because it makes APAN stronger, and we need to be able to be listening to Jewish voices as part of this. But it also gives, as you say, Jewish people alternative ways or ways to have an alternative voice of theirs be heard. Just finally, Jessica, it is the, the 9th of April and that's the day of the um, elections in Israel. We probably won't have a, a results for maybe a day or so. 
Yeah, look, Israel's a fascinating kind of parliamentary system. They very rarely have an outright majority of one party ruling, so they're all coalitions. So it'll take a while for us to know who the coalition will be in this government. So the, the government that's been in Israel up until this moment is Benjamin Netanyahu, who's Likud party, and everyone to the right of them. And look, if you know, the Likud's charter says that there will be no Palestinian state, and that's the most progressive member of the current coalition. So it will be interesting to see who, who wins this election. So where it looks like Likud may or may not have the most seats. The second most popular uh, party is a coalition re- led by Benny Gantz, and people might remember the name Benny Gantz as someone who was protested here in Melbourne in 2016. He was the head of the IDF in 2014, leading Operation Protective Edge, which killed over 2,000 people in Gaza and decimated thousands and thousands of homes. So he's seen as the centrist candidate, which just shows you where Israeli politics are at at the moment, that, that somebody with such a horrific kind of military history can be seen as the middle of the road. So the Labor Party, who's, you know, a kind of post-Blair kind of Labor Party, if you like, the Labor Party, um, who's very Zionist and very supportive of the settlement program, but is more progressive in other ways, they kind of, they, a recent poll showed that they might actually get quite a number of seats. And then there's some really extremist parties that are, are going up in the Israeli elections. So it will be interesting to see what comes out of the elections this week. Say, unfortunately, there's no parties that are campaigning passionately or strongly for a just peace settlement with Palestine. So that's what's really disappointing, that whoever wins this election this week, we're very unlikely to see any moves inside Israel for a just peace with Palestine. And I suppose it's just a matter of time before Netanyahu goes to jail. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, he may not. I mean... Uh, Israeli politicians have been able to get away with horrendous stuff in the past and people have gone in and out of jail. Um, But these allegations around fraud and corruption have been hanging over his head for a few years. So, you know, I don't know if a cardinal can go to jail in Melbourne. Maybe a a corrupt politician can go to jail in Israel. Say no more. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Dan. Okay. Bye-bye. Cheers. And that, of course, is Jessica Morrison, who's the CEO of Australian... Palestine Advocacy Network. It's now becoming clear that the Nautilus Minerals seabed mining project in PNG is dead in the water. As one headline put it, broke, in debt, bankrupt. Natalie Lowry is the media spokesperson for the Deep Sea Mining Campaign and has been involved in the opposition together with the local communities in PNG and elsewhere. Natalie, that writing is beyond the wall for all of this year. What events have led all those concerns to conclude that the end is near? Yes, the, the end is definitely nigh, and probably longer than two months, to be honest, because they've been in this sort of perpetual loans um, and not really moving forward, and then they had trouble with their shipping vessel. But I guess the key sort of dates, sort of 11th of March, um, they took steps. I guess towards bankruptcy proceedings, you could call it. They seeked court protection from creditors under what they call the Canadian Companies Creditors Arrangement Act. And they'd, they'd already conducted a pre-filing on the 21st of February. And that, that protection had been extended to the 28th of June. 
they've, they've failed to deal with their debt, basically. And the company, as I said before, has been on a sort of drip feed of loans from its two main shareholders, a Russian mining company, Metal Invest, and Armani conglomerate MB Holding. So, that, you know, they haven't been able to name a starting date. There's clearly growing... The opposition in PNG is really huge now. So, in a sense, this is like a distressed fire sale of their assets, which would be primarily their machines that um, they built for Solara One. The actual pre-court filing lays out a detailed arrangement that essentially, it essentially protects the interests of, this, of a small number of key players, so notably the directors and major shareholders, making sure that they have a bit of a softer landing. There doesn't seem too much thought for other creditors and small shareholders, including the government of P&G. Last week, April 3rd, uh, Nautilus was unsuccessful to appeal the initial decision by the Canadian Stock Exchange or Toronto Stock Exchange, sorry, to delist its shares. So they were delisted last week. And pretty much after the delisting, we have seen uh, what we've been saying, rats fleeing a sinking ship. Uh, the Nautilus CEO, John McCoach, and four out of five directors resigned. So where does this leave the company now? Well, they're saying that they'll report on the outcome of the sale investment sort of plan in late June or early July. But I think we can safely say they're dead in the water. Can I look at the reaction in P&G? There was a large meeting yesterday. What was the result of that? So the Alliance of Solar Warriors, which uh, coastal communities across um, the Bismarck Sea, so five provinces, some of those representatives came to the Matanai, New Island province, now, the west coast of New Island province is the closest to the Sawada One project, but uh, some of the villages there are about 25 kilometres away, so not very far, this is in their traditional fishing grounds. So they had a forum in the Matanai with various speakers from Duke of York Island, East New Britain, obviously New Island province, um, and also really strongly backed by the Papua New Guinean Council of Churches. And that's very significant because they represent so many people in PNG, and they're, they're the trusted institution, probably more trusted than the government, to be honest. So on Saturday, they started with a, a, a convoy of cars all around the town. I've seen some photos that were posted on Facebook, um, had big banners, and really trying to, I guess, rally people to come to the forum. And the forum went most of the day. And um, when I spoke to Jonathan Messelin, who's one of the co-founders of the Alliance of Sawara Warriors, he said about 500 people came. So that's really significant. And I think key to that was them talking about how they, they don't want this. They want a complete ban. And they also talked about other issues like illegal locking, so issues that are really affecting them and their local communities. Uh, and I guess one of the key calls, which they will be putting out in a, a statement that's been driven by local communities is for the Papua New Guinean government to terminate the operating licence and all of um, the Sawara One licence and all of the Nautilus exploration licences in the Bismarck and Solomon Seas. So that's kind of what they've been calling. Jonathan actually called that, I think it would have been Radio New Zealand last week. He was quoted also calling for that. So that's sort of where the community is. They're still pushing for a ban backed by churches. And, you know, really now the next step is for the Papua New Guinean government to terminate Sawara 1 and cancel all of Nautilus exploration licences.
What's in it for the PNG government not to revoke that licence? We're not sure of the legal ramifications. That's something that I guess, you know, we're talking to some people about to try and get an analysis. The reality is it, the government will lose 125 million US to borrow to buy the 15% share of Sawara One licence. But every year, you know, it spends tens of million dollars repaying interest for this loan. So, you know, as you know, Jonathan and, and a lot of the local communities are saying, this money would be better spent on providing us the services that we need. And they feel very... Well, they feel like Nautilus and the executives and company directors uh, have walked away, most likely, with plenty of money themselves, and they've cheated the PNG government and its citizens. What I'd like to do now is look at the costs of this project. Looking at the, the local communities, perhaps the wider community in PNG, and then move on to the government, and then to move on to the activist. Just the, the, the costs of, of keeping this campaign going all these years. First, what has it meant for the local communities and perhaps the wider community in PNG in terms of threats to their culture, stress, damage to the community? How has it affected them? And also, in a sense, the positives from their campaign. I think the difference with the Sawada One project compared to, say, other mining that's going on PNG is it hasn't started. So this is all preventative. This is all like, we are not going to allow you to start digging up our seas, which we have significant spiritual, economic, cultural connection with, social connection with. So that's been their call. Sure, they have worked very hard for a decade or more. And, of course, you know, they've done this with very little resources. Some community members, in a sense, have sacrificed their own careers to one in particular as a teacher to stand up for his community and continue the struggle, which is incredibly inspiring and brave. But the positive that comes out of it is I've looking from outside in into PNG where things can be very provincial, this campaign has become PNG wide. It's reached all the way to the highlands, you know, and and the people who've taken it there from Kaka Island have connected those Highland people to say, if anything happens to our seas, it impacts you as well. So the campaign has gone very wide, and that's probably the most extraordinary and positive thing. And to have the churches really 100% back it, including the Cardinal of Papua New Guinea, has been very outspoken and calling for a ban on seabed mining. I guess, you know, the, the stresses and the, and the constant having to campaign and be up against it is that they've built a movement and that in itself, I know that they work very hard but they seem to still have a lot of optimism and strength in their struggle, um, which uh, for me is amazing and um, very inspirational. You've spoken a bit about the PNG government, but could they possibly seek financial compensation if this all falls flat in its face? I guess that's something that we are not 100% sure if they can. We need to be talking to people in PNG who have more knowledge around the ins and outs of what that could look like. 
It's quite possibly that money will be lost and it's just yet another mistake by the PNG government investing in um, developments that just shouldn't happen in PNG. So yet it's another lesson that Papua New Guineans are probably, you know, bearing the brunt of because that money should be going into hospitals and schools. But yeah, I guess the next step for the campaign in Papua New Guinea is looking into that. How can these licences be terminated? How can they pressure but also support the government to look at avenues that can extract them out of what is a, a really shitty situation? But I think we see this often with mining companies. You know, whether it's BHP and Octeti and, and killing a whole river system, but being able to walk away and not really... I mean, yes, there may be some compensation, but really the years of suffering that so many people across, along that river system, it doesn't equate. So often these corporations just get to walk away almost scot-free, and I guess that's what we're pointing out in their, their legal strategy at the moment is is keeping the directors safe, is keeping those who are responsible safe within Nautilus. And then there's the activists who have supported the local people. We're talking about people like yourself in Australia, also Canada. Have there been other countries also who have been supporting the local people? There's been Pacific meetings, so there's a, a strong connection across the Pacific because, it, you know, BNG is the testing ground. It looks like it may not happen, thankfully, but we know that there's exploration leaseholds right across the Pacific. So countries like Fiji, Vanuatu, um, you know, they're all very concerned as well. So that continues to grow and build, I guess, more of a Pacific-wide strategy. And we also have really good international colleagues that are doing stuff at the EU level. So I guess the new news is that, you know, the EU Parliament has come out calling for a moratorium on seabed mining. It is only in international waters, but it is something. And that call is starting to grow for at least a 10-year moratorium. We're still calling for a ban. We still believe that that's what it should be, that our deep seas should not be touched. And more and more scientists are coming out as they're starting to be able to explore deeper and actually really do the research how significant these ecosystems are and we just don't know enough of disturbing them what it will mean for our oceans particularly in this day and age where climate change is at the forefront of everyone actually our deep seas might be something that can protect us and we don't need to be disturbing it. So for us it should be a ban but we also understand that a moratorium is a really good step. If we can hold off the industry, the science can get in there and go we really need to protect it, then that's also um, a really positive outcome. Finally Natalie, what would you say are the lessons, the, the big lessons that have been learned over these last couple of years? Never underestimate the mining industry in any way or form. Just because Nautilus may be dead in the water, the industry is not going away. And we have a massive fight on our hands. There's another company which has emerged out of Nautilus, to be honest. It's the founder of Nautilus and some other key uh, executives that left Nautilus on a high with money who started Deep Green. Now, Deep Green is slick in PR very different to Nautilus. They've obviously learnt something. The CEO is ex-advertising and their messaging is along the lines of no child labour, 
no deforestation. This is all, for, you know, climate change, green tech. And that's very scary messaging because we know how desperate people are on climate change. But this is not going to be the answer, is to dig up our deep-sea oceans for minerals. We need to be protecting them. So we know the fight, even though the deep-sea mining campaign we're in our ninth year, we still feel like it's only just beginning. But we feel like we have stronger networks. We have this fantastic broad-based campaign in P&G that really is a strong case study of how communities can come together. And I firmly believe, yes, Nautilus has had financial troubles, but its reputation has been continuously tarnished because of its lack of social licence in Papua New Guinea. So we need to continue that in the region and we need to keep building this internationally, even within, you know, it's an oceans issue and it's a mining issue. So even in the sort of campaigning activist arena, a lot of people working on mining issues are still unaware of deep sea mining. So we still have a lot of work to do. We're not going away any time soon. Thanks, Natalie, for all your work. Thank you. And that was Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. It looks as though it's dead in the water. Good job too. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at four. Bye for now. <laughs> 